All right, everybody. Everybody say Sunday school. Sunday school. All right, here I want to introduce two people for you. Um, so if you could please mind your attention up here. This is the Larsons. Everybody say hi, Larsons. This is Gary and Cheryl Larson, and they are really nice because they're going to talk to us this morning, and let me brag about them just a little bit. They're both elders at New Life Church, which means they own the world at New Life Church. They make, I don't know, really know what that means, but they are also trustees at New Life Church, so all the financial decisions um, are passed through a board of trustees, and Gary is on that board. Gary is also on the board of the Pastoral Selection Committee, which are the people that are uh, going to select the representative for our new pastor um, pretty soon. And so Gary's also on that. Cheryl is uh, taking classes at King's College and Seminary. She's learning Greek and Hebrew. Don't you think that's sweet? Yes, I do. And they have four children. Two of them you might know. John Larson used to lead worship a little bit. Uh, you've probably seen him around the mill. Sarah Larson is the violinist at the mill. You guys know the violinist? You know, come on now. You know what I'm talking about. And so this is Gary and Cheryl. They met in 1968, got married. They've been married, so that's almost 40 years, right? 38. 38 years. That's pretty cool. They've been Christians since 1974, and they just have a lot of wisdom to share with us. As they're talking, think of questions that you want to ask them, because at the end, we're going to save about 10 minutes for Q&A. But how about I open us up in some prayer? All right. God, we just welcome you here this morning. God, as mill students, as young people, college, 20-somethings, God, I just ask that you will open our hearts right now. Let us learn your wisdom from people that have gone before us, people that have had a life to live and are here to share about it, people that have lived your life, God, and have been blessing you with their lives. And so we just welcome you here, God. We welcome your presence, and it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's just welcome the Larsons. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. How are you? You doing okay? Get some breakfast. You guys uh, probably like to sleep in a little bit. We like to sleep in. Problem is, the older you get, the earlier you don't get to sleep in anymore sometimes. And uh, so Cheryl and I have been married for 38 years as of December 13th of uh, this last year. And uh, as Joe said, we have four, four children. And we also, what is really getting to be really cool is that uh, we have now three grandchildren. And we just heard recently that we, uh, uh, a married couple doesn't have a right to speak to other people until they have grandchildren. So About parenting, yeah. we feel qualified. <laughs> so we're here today to talk to you about how to finish strong. And I just got to start by saying that uh, it's not how you start that's uh, going to be what you're judged upon, but it's, but it's how you finish. Um, have, any, have you read books by Steve Farrar? Anybody here? Just a few of you. Well, he's, uh, Steve Farrar is a guy who wrote a book called Finishing Strong. I haven't read it, but... I just looked on the internet to, uh, to see some of the things, you know, some of the, the little uh, bullet points. And he said um, <clears throat> what he really hopes is someday 
when he uh, goes on to be with the Lord, that if somebody were going to do a tombstone upon his grave, he would want him to want that tombstone to say, "Here lies Stephen Farrar, died, born so and so, died whenever you know how they do those things." And he said, "What he would like to have as an ep- as his epitaph is that he would like for that tombstone to say." He didn't screw up. And that really kind of sums it up. You know, you want to finish life so that you didn't screw it up. And unfortunately today, we're in a kind of a, a culture and a society where marriages are breaking up. Uh, over half is the percentages right now. And there's all kinds of things that we're facing today in our culture that are challenges to our Christian faith. And so we're, we're here today to talk about winning the race. And we don't come saying that we've done everything right. In fact, we've probably made more than our share of mistakes. And so we're not coming to you as perfection. We're coming to you as ones who have uh, fought the fight uh, in their Christian walk. When Cheryl and I got married, we didn't have... Uh, a lot of Christian or a lot of biblical foundation. I mean, we had some, but it wasn't real strong. You're so fortunate. Is that me? That's uh, popping that thing. Uh, you're so fortunate to be here this morning. I mean, what you have is an incredible thing beyond what we had available to us at the time. So you're really, uh, God has placed you in a, in a good place to really get nurtured, nurtured in the Word. And, and that's the main thing that we could say to you is that this thing right here, this Bible, it's all right there. It's all there. I was, uh, Cheryl and I were uh, kind of courting each other a little bit. We, we had a short relationship, but I had to go into Less the Army. Less than six months. <laughs> yeah. I had to go into the Army, and I was in basic training, and I didn't know the Lord. But the only way we could get out of our company area was on Sunday to go to church. So we would go there, and we'd, we'd, we'd figure out how to meet all of our buddies who were in different companies who went different times. Anyway, while I was there, I picked up a good news for modern man. Have you ever heard of that? It's actually like a, a living Bible that was called Good News for Modern Man. It was kind of a way to, to reach people that didn't, didn't believe. And so I would sit there in my barracks that, at night uh, with a flashlight writing love letter to Cheryl. And I would be thumbing through this book called Good News for Modern Man, which was really just a Bible. Not just, but it was a Bible. And I would be quoting scriptures to her. And I'd say, Cheryl, when I get out of this, which was, was terrible where I was at. We're gonna we're gonna serve God. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna follow after the Lord. And it wasn't until almost five years after we were, we were married and uh, we had just had our first child, Britta, and she was 11 months old, <clears throat> and that's when I came to the Lord, and I realized with this tiny baby, 11 month old baby, that I was incapable of raising her. I had come from a very dysfunctional, abusive home life, and I was so worried that the same thing would happen, repeat itself in my children, and I wanted them to have a hope and a chance in life. And so 
I came to the Lord in February, and then several months later, Gary came to the Lord May, May 17th, and that was the beginning of our life. And one of the things that, um, one of the greatest words that God gave to me was from a non-believer, a little Greek lady, who worked with me, and she said, Cheryl, if you will read the Bible, you will find all the answers to your life. And she didn't know the Lord. And she thought that by reading it once, it's just like one of those books that you have in your library. You read it, and you put it away, and that's it. But I took that word, and I started in Genesis, which I highly recommend you do not if you are new in the Lord. (laughs) But I started in Genesis, and I read through the word. And I have to tell you, that has been the habit of my life for 34 years, reading the word of God. The whole counsel of God. We need the whole counsel of God. We need to ingest that word. We need to eat that word. We need to have that word become a part of our life. That word has to go into every fiber of our being. And then we have to act upon that word. And I can tell you, because of that and that pattern in our life, that has what has kept us through trials and, and temptations and sufferings in um, the 38 years we've known the Lord. It has kept us. It has kept us, and we are so grateful for that. Well, why don't you talk about setting the goal? Well, that's really the beginning of setting the goal, is to um, begin to find out who is God. Who is he? Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? What, what are, is his personality? What are his attributes? What does he think about us? How has he created us? What, what is the meaning of life? We find that in the pages of scripture. So in setting the goal for our lives, for our future, right away the Lord began to, to, to teach us that he has a plan for our life. He has a gifting for us. He has a calling. We have offices in the body of Christ. We have gifts. We have a personality. We are unique. We are different from everyone else, and God loves our personalities. God loves who we are. And that was the first big lesson I had to learn, that God loved me for who I was. He loved me in the depths of the pit where I was. He loved me enough to draw me up out of the pit and to begin to show me who I really was. I wasn't who I thought I was. And so Proverbs 29.18 says that without a vision, God's people perish. We need to know who we are. If we don't know who we are in Jesus, if we don't know where we are going, we're not going to finish the race. We need to know who we are in the Lord. It says, uh, where there is no vision, no redemptive revelation of God, the people perish. But he who keeps the law of God, which includes that of man, blessed is he. So we have a responsibility to find out who we are. The Lord says to us, if you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. But it is our responsibility to draw close to God. If we don't do that, if we are walking um, a life that we're doing the right things and we're going to church and we have fellowship, but we do not have an intimate relationship with the Lord, we will stumble. And so the Lord wants relationship. That's what he purposed from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, to walk in the cool of the evening with them, to share his heart, his plans, to share his beautiful creation. That's what he 
He desires from you and me. He wants us to walk with him. He wants to bear his heart to us. He wants to show us his secrets. And so the beginning of the race is that step of saying, Lord, I am yours, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm starting this race with you. And then over the years, you begin to learn and grow in, in him. And so that's the first step. The second step is establishing the criteria for our life. And to me, that's preparation. To me, that's discipline. Are we willing to be disciplined by him? Because we live in a society today where entertainment is, is the goal, and we hurry up and get all of the other things, requirements that we have done so that we can pursue self-fulfillment, entertainment, those kinds of things. But are we willing to be disciplined? Are we willing to lay our lives down? Are we willing to take up the cross and follow him? Why don't you take your Bibles out and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, is, uh, I think, uh, the beginning of it all for, for preparations for finishing strong. And what this is, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27, this is a Paul describing a uh, preparing for the race. And it's, uh, it's patterned after the Grecian games, the original Olympic games that were being conducted in, in Greece at that time. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into st- strict training. Now what that means, uh, reading in the Amplified Bible, it means... Uh, conducting yourself temperately and restricting yourself from all things. In other words, setting yourself aside. And when you athletically go into training, your diet changes, your exercise regimen changes, the amount of outside or extracurricular activities that you have changes. So that's what this means at this training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. In the Olympics, what they used to do, instead of giving out the gold medals, they used to give out these wreaths. And that, what, what's meant by this is that it's a wreath that they get as a prize. It's not going to last. Therefore, I do not run like a, a man running aimlessly and uh, without direction. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No. I beat my body. I beat my body and make it my slave. That's what Cheryl's talking about, about the discipline. Discipline and discipline that comes by hardships, by having set aside the things that bring pleasure to us, but rather uh, taking on the disciplines of, of studying the word and of being in prayer and being obedient to the word of God and uh, fulfilling his purpose. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And another word for that is unfit for the prize. 
Has everybody seen the, the movie that came out in 1981? It was called Chariots of Fire. About Eric Little. Is that how you pronounce his last name? And I, uh, I remember that whole thing about uh, striving, you know, for the, for the, the race. And, and I think the, 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 the total of that story is that it wasn't the athletic pursuit that was his final greatest call. The fact is that, you know, he was going to run the 100 meter and it was on Sunday. You know that story. And he ended up, however, running the 400 meter, which was not on Sunday, the day that he set aside for the Lord. And he won it, and he wasn't expected to win. He set a world record at that time. And that was back in the 1924 uh, Olympics in France. But Eric was faithful, and this is the perfect uh, picture for, for all of us of how we run the race. He was faithful. He actually died in a Japanese internment camp of a brain tumor, I think it was, uh, but the bottom line was that he was he ended up doing the Lord's work. And so I think the picture there is that, that history would tend to focus on the Olympic pursuit and, and uh, uh, what he accomplished there. But in reality, what it probably was, was all of those people in China that he brought, led to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, today we've got China, which is completely closed off uh, to Christianity, and there's the underground church, and there's underground evangelism that's taking place there. And there are now today people, because maybe some of it to, to some degree, because of the, the seeds that were sown back in the, in the 40s by guys like Eric, uh, that now there are millions of people every year that are coming to know the Lord. The most important thing um, we have to understand is, as we come into our relationship with the Lord, I think is summed up in Proverbs 1, and I'd like to read the first few chapter, uh, verses to you. And this is, um, For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. <clears throat> let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings of riddles of the wise. And this is the key scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I'm not talking about a fear that you quake in your boots, that you have such fear that you are unable to come into the presence of the Lord because you feel guilty or ashamed, but that you have such a reverence for God <clears throat> and such a love for him that you come into his presence with humility, realizing that he is the giver of life and he is the lover of your soul. So the greatest... Uh, Thing that we can do is to have this reverential fear of the Lord, to honor him, to respect him, and to show him his, his, um, his due respect. You know, I'm going to go to the end of my notes because I, I want to talk to you about who God is. As I, I've told you to draw near to the Lord, there is only one way that we can draw near to him, 
And that's when we set ourselves apart from the society and the environment that we live in. When we become holy as God is holy, and yes, we can be holy as God is holy, it doesn't mean that we are perfect. What it means is, is that we are setting ourselves aside to him so that we can become like him. And because God is holy, I want you to understand something that has been so revolutionary to me about not fearing his holiness, but revering it. His nature is perfect. It is complete holiness. And so sin is contrary to his nature. Sin has no place in his nature because God is holy. For example, if, if we lie, God cannot align himself up to lying because he's holy. There is no lying in him. He is absolute truth. He is absolute holiness. And so... Uh, his, his nature has to turn away from that. So when we come into the presence of the Lord, we come in with humility. We come in praising his name and thanking him for who he is and confessing our sins. And I think it's a difficult thing for us today to uh, want to recognize that we have sin. We want to hide it. We want to cover it, much like Adam and Eve did. We want to put the blame on other people. But, but because of who God is, he's calling us in to be, to be like him. He wants us to be like him. He established the law, the perfect law of liberty, because that's who he is. So he's not asking us to be legalistic because that's not who he is. He's asking us to abide in his law because that's who he is. He's not a liar. He'll never lie to you. Man will lie to you. Man will deceive you, but God will never lie to you, and he will never deceive you because he loves you. And so he's calling you to come to him. So when we disobey his law, it's actually a, an attack upon his very person of who he is. So the law is, as we read this word, this, this beautiful word, the law is to be understood as a means of relating to him how we relate to him. And when we come into his presence, we are washed by the blood of the lamb and all of our sins are washed away as we are willing to acknowledge them. And if we're not willing to acknowledge them, then they remain with us and we cannot enter into this intimate relationship. And I know that all of you here in this room long for a true intimate relationship. You long for that. We all do. We long to be known who we are. We want people to understand who we are. We want to be accepted for who we are. Who are we? God loves us. He, he made us. He formed us. So if we can give ourselves to him and allow him to remove the layers of what our society has put on us. And as you as young people, if you can rise up in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be who you are in him and not another, not comparing yourself to another, but who are you in him and you being fulfilled in that and rising up and allowing the Holy Spirit to anoint you, to touch you where you go. Because each and every one of you have a realm, a realm of influence 
You have influence in this life, each and every one of you. You have an influence in a realm that no other person can enter into. So if you are not picking up your tools and getting into this race and fighting for the cause of Christ, there's going to be a void. Do you see how important you are? Just one person, one person You have the potential to touch lives that no other person can. You are so blessed. And God is wanting the key is the fear of the Lord and rising up, taking the keys to the kingdom of hell that he has given to you and fulfilling the call on your life, much like Eric Little did. God used him to win a race, but God used him to win a greater race in China. And so we need to understand, I believe the word, at least the word the Lord spoke to me this year, and I believe it is for our church, God is calling a holy people to him. We are priests and we are kings of the living God, and he is calling us. He's calling us to set aside all of the things that have entangled us and ensnared us and have compromised us. He's calling us to be set aside for him because... The scripture says that the Lord reveals his secrets to his people who have a hearing ear, who will hear his word, take his word, and run with his word. And it is not us, but it is the word in us that he is calling us to take the word and to run with it, to run with it until the end of our lives, till we meet the Lord so that others may follow And it's the word. It's God's word going forth that does not return void. God's word does not return void. God's word is powerful. It's Jesus. John says that the word came to dwell among us. It is Jesus. It's his word going forth. Well, uh, I want to tell you just a quick little story about uh, when I was about your age. I uh, I first went to junior college and then was able to transfer to the School of Architecture at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California. And uh, while we were there, it was kind of hard to figure out whether we were majoring in architecture or Avila Beach, which is the place we <laughs> like to hang out all the time. And, uh, uh, but uh, I, was, I was kind of a, I was a little older than most of the other students, and I had some work experience going there. And I also had a degree of talent in architecture. And I know that uh, now that I look back, it was, a, it was a gift that God had given me, though at that point in time, I wasn't well, willing to acknowledge the fact that it was a, God, a God-given gift. So uh, I was in my freshman year winning all of the design competitions and uh, really performing well. I was kind of like at the top of the class. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. In fact, I was feeling way too good about myself. And uh, I can remember a fifth-year student, because architecture is a five-year curriculum, a fifth-year student who I had come to know, who was also a very talented guy, come up to me, and his name is Jim Hisatomi. He was a Japanese guy from, from the San Francisco Bay Area. And he came up, and he took me by my shirt, and he pulled me right square up into his eyes, and he said, let me tell you something. You think you're pretty good. But I want you to understand that no matter how good you are, 
there's going to be another guy that's going to come along who is a whole lot better than you are. And if you get to thinking that you're the only one, then you're going to be sadly disappointed. And I took that and uh, decided to, to walk in a more of a course of humility because I, I was afraid. <laughs> and um, then after years and years later, having come to know the Lord uh, and also already in the uh, profession and we had our first uh, little girl and beginning to realize the brevity or the weight or the mantle that had come upon us of being parents and responsible for life and uh, making a living and, and then sought after the Lord in fear. But we sought after him not in fear of the Lord, in fear of life. But we found the fear of the Lord. And one of the first verses that I began to, that I came across, has become my life verse. And I wanted to share that with you uh, from the standpoint of it kind of points out how uh, our walk with the Lord uh, probably should be. And it's in John, John 3.30. And it's very simple. That's another part of a life verse. You want it simple enough so that you can remember it if you have trouble memorizing things, which is what I do. And it's a real simple, and I, I've memorized it in just the, uh, the New King James, which is what I use, but it's really simple, and this is the way it goes. He, Jesus, must increase, and I, Gary Larson, must decrease. So why don't, let's, do, let's, let's, let's go through the, the, just say that together, and you, put, you, ins, you insert your name, okay? Let's say it together aloud. He, Jesus, must increase, and I, Gary, must decrease. You know, we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But, you know, that was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he was a weird, wild guy. You know, he locusts and honey and all that stuff. And a lot of us are the same way, really, even though we don't look that way. But... He was proclaiming that there was going to be somebody coming along greater than him, and that's Jesus. Well, Jim Hisatomi told me at a young age that somebody was come, going to come along that was greater than me. And uh, he wasn't talking about Jesus, but that really is who it is. So I'd like you to turn to, as we're closing here, uh, to Philippians 3, Philippians chapter 3. And I think this is a verse that you all know, and you probably I understood that Aaron was teaching on running the race here recently, so maybe this is one of those scriptures, but I'd just kind of like to talk about it a little bit. So it's Philippians 3, starting with verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all of this, and that would be uh, Paul saying, uh, now that I've, not that I've attained all of this ideal, or have already been made perfect, because we all know we're not perfect. But I press on to take hold. And the Amplified talks about that word being grasping for. Taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. 
But one thing I do, in other words, it is my aspiration, forgetting what is behind and straining like Eric Little was straining toward that what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And uh, in this case, it's a supreme and a heavenly prize that we're seeking after. The prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of people read that verse and that's kind of like the end of it. What you got to do, though, is you got to read on. And we'll finish with this. Going to verse 15. All of us who are mature, and that's spiritually mature, and uh, fully grown, and that's what you're trying to do, should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control that will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like us. They'll be like his but like his glory, glorious body. And and also, so, uh, I just wanted to interject here that you are the young generation rising up who will be coming into a time and taking our place as we go on to be with the Lord. And I want you to really think about what Lamentations 3:25 through 28 says. And it says that it is good for a man that he should bear the yoke of divine disciplinary dealings in his youth. So look upon discipline as a good thing. Hebrews 12 says, Discipline for the moment seems to be so grievous, but afterwards it yields a perfect fruit of righteousness. And I think of all of the stumblings that Gary and I have done along the way. We have loved God, and we've, we've uh, really worked so hard to know him more and more. But we are seeing fruit in our older age now. We are seeing such incredible fruit. Our children are strong. They love the Lord. They are serving him. They have a purpose and a plan for their life. We now have grandchildren who are being raised in godly homes. And, and we see our children uh, raising them in, in much the same way that we raise them. Even though we made many mistakes with our kids, we see, we see the fruit. And that's what you want. You want to come to the age like we are, and as we get older, that we enjoy the fruit of seeing our children grow up to be strong and mighty pillars and towers in the kingdom of God, and to see our grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren know the Lord.
So bear the yoke of discipline in your youth. Embrace it. When people come to you and offer you suggestions, embrace it. Lift it before the Lord. Allow him to convict your heart. And, um, and it says, don't let him sit alone uncomplaining and keeping silent in hope because God has laid the yoke upon him for his benefit. It is a good thing to embrace the different experiences we have in life. James tells us to count it joy when we face tough times, when we face suffering, because that is what builds our character. And really what you want in your life is your character and your person, who you are, to be built up in the Lord. And Isn't that she beautiful? Yeah. Thank you, Joe.